You are listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're within the pre-K class, you're free to go to your classes now. Thank you for worshiping with us. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you need a copy of God's Word, uh, we've got a couple extras in the back. Just slip up your hand. One of our church members would be glad to bring you a hard copy to look off of. We will begin reading in verse 17 here in just a moment. I've been journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are now in a section which Paul takes up the topic of marriage and divorce, sex and singleness. And we're in the middle of that section now, but as with everything, when there's a practical reality in the Christian life that you're struggling with, there is almost always a deeper sort of theological uh, failure or something that you're missing that's affecting the practical. Uh, some sort of concept of God or God's plan or God's design that you're missing, which is causing issue in the more obvious thing. I'm fighting all the time with my spouse or uh, I'm feeling this way. Normally, there's a deficiency in our view of God or our view of His world. I think that Paul recognizes that, and so in the middle of this chapter on these very practical things, there is a, there's a principle here for us to see. The Corinthians, like many of us, uh, were after the good life. I mean, they wanted to be happy. They wanted joy. And the problem was, however, that like many of us, they, they went looking for that happiness and that joy in the wrong places, in the wrong ways. Some in Corinth sought it in power and prestige. We saw in chapter 1, they were associating themselves with powerful leaders, sort of puffing up their chests, saying, I'm with so-and-so, you're with so-and-so, that makes me better than you. And they found their joy in that sort of pride. Some sought it in the fleeting pleasure of Sexual sin. They said, oh, I'm a Christian now. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. And the thing that I want to do is to be sexually active with whoever I want to be. Some believed they could arrive to a special sort of spiritual status by forgoing all forms of pleasure in this life. They were seeking a, a sort of ascetic life where they would uh, uh, be monks, if you will. They would separate themselves from all things, and by doing this, they would find the highest pleasure in some sort of mystical spirituality. So some were saying, I no longer need to be married to my spouse. I'll no longer uh, have any sort of intimate relations with them. I'll find some sort of secret mystical joy. Some thought the best thing for their joy and their holiness was to get out of their difficult marriage. As we'll see later, some thought that all would be well if only they could get into a new marriage. So chapters 
7 has discussed this, but in verse 17, he pauses the discussion of marriage, divorce, and singleness directly for now a deeper principle on the real crux of the Corinthian problem, the problem of their contentment in the Lord, their disbelief that God was good, that God was in control of all things, and that God's way was the best way. As we read this morning's text, I want you uh, to take note of the repeated word called. So I'm going to read the text in a minute, but I wanted to to show you that repetition beforehand. I didn't want you to miss it. And in each occasion that you see the word called in this paragraph, what Paul's going to do is he's, he's emphasizing what God has done and what God is doing in them to help them to stop being distracted by what they think they can do to achieve this joy. So uh, there's going to be some weird things in the text um, that we're unfamiliar with, but the, the original readers would have been super familiar with uh, the things that he's addressing. And so uh, bear with me, and we'll try to make sense of it all together. Verse 17 is where we'll begin. Only, Paul says, <clears throat> let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Parentheses, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called, he's a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of man. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord for some help. Um, Father, we need you. We need you to help make sense of this text, what it would have meant for the original context. We need for you to help us to make sense of this text for our lives. You are sovereign over this moment and every individual human being sitting in a chair in this room. And you have called them here to hear something true from the living God. And so, Father, we pray that you would work a miracle in our hearing, in our understanding, in our applying of the Scripture. I pray that you would move me out of the way, help me to say only what you would have me say. We pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are two ways that Paul is using the word call in this paragraph. God is doing both of them. God's doing all the action here. He's doing all the calling here. And the first, more foundational call that we see repeated nine times in just seven verses is to recognize the call of God unto salvation. When Paul writes, he's assuming that they understand what God has done definitively in their life. When he writes, the time 
of your call in verse 18, 20, 21, 22, and verse 24, what Paul's referring to is the miraculous moment where God intervened into your life and opened your eyes to eternal truth. That God is real, that God is holy, and that though you're a sinner, undeserving of relationship with Him, God loved you, paid the price for your sin on the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and invites you into relationship with Him forever. In a moment in time, if you're a Christian, something happened where your eyes opened to that reality, and that became to you the most important reality about you and about the world you live in. That's the moment, according to Paul, of your call. And the thread that's going to run through this whole paragraph is this assumption. This is truth number one. Our most important calling is God's call to eternal life. Our most important calling is God's call to eternal life. In fact, this is where the whole letter begins. He addresses the Christians in Corinth with this description. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, on the screen, he says, To the church of God that's in the Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that is, holy ones, Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Later in chapter 1, he says that this divine, effective, life-changing action of God in calling you out of your sin into eternal life, God's call is the thing that makes you different from all the other Corinthians in the city. It's the most important thing about you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Listen to the distinctions. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. And these are the people that are rejecting the message of the cross, right? Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. So we're preaching the most important message in the world. Jews are rejecting it for their reasons. Gentiles are rejecting it for their reasons. But you, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So let's just pause for a moment as we think about him using this language of calling. And, and let's pause for a moment as Christians and recognize this great truth that, that the Corinthians were taking for granted, that the most eternally significant thing about you, the most life-changing thing about you, the best thing that ever happened to you is that the God of the universe, by his great grace, looked on you, a sinner, and said, you are mine. Let me show you what I've done for you and what I'll do for you forevermore. He called you to himself. Now, some of you in the room might be sitting here and saying, I've never experienced that. Let me just encourage you, our God is gracious to do that. And if you have a desire at all for relationship with God or for an understanding of sin or for eternal life in heaven, that desire that's in you right now stirring to ask questions and say, what is it? 
What would it look like for me to be called? That's God putting that desire and that curiosity in your soul right now. Today might be the day that God calls. Whatever you think is important in your life, it pales in comparison to this fact, 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of Him... You're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The thing that we will say in heaven if there was ever a moment where God says, why should I let you into the kingdom of God? We would not say, well, look at all the things I did. I went to church this many times. I did this many good things. I didn't do that many bad things. No, the things we would say is, you called me here by your grace. Through the person who work at Jesus. We will, if that question is asked, then we will reflect the answer back to the question giver. You called me here. I did nothing to deserve it. Now what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is an argument um, that this call should be the single most defining, most important thing about our lives on earth. Uh, it, it's the lens through which we see all of life. It's the lens through which we determine what a life worth living is like. It's the primary call. So verse 22 says uh, in the text, and this is a little prequel of what we'll get to, basically says if your socioeconomic status is bondservant, lowest, lowest ring on the ladder, lowest part of the socioeconomic world, Paul says, don't worry about it. Don't be concerned with it if you're a servant and that all of the Roman Empire is all about getting his most honor and prestige and moving yourself up the ladder if at all possible. Paul says, don't worry about that. And then he says, you know, if you, if you get the opportunity, sure, you know, become a freed man. But then verse 23 says, you were bought with a price. In other words, the most important thing about you is not whether you're a slave or a freed man. Whether you got no money in the bank or a ton of money in the bank. Whether you're a master or under a master. The most important thing about you is that God purchased you with the blood of Christ. So yeah, take advantage if you can become freed. But it doesn't matter because for all of eternity, you'll be freed in the Jesus Christ who saved you. All other callings or aspects of earthly life are now filtered through the eternal calling, the call of God on our lives to believe upon the Lord Jesus and be with him forever. Truth number one, our most important calling is God's call to eternal life. But that call is not the only call of God on your life. And the Christian, Christians don't believe that God just saves you eternally in a moment and then steps back from you for you to figure it out all on your own. We don't believe that Christianity is just a pass, a get-out-of-hell-free pass that you receive upon the day that you put faith in Jesus, and then you take that pass, put it in the pocket, make sure you don't lose it, right, and you go on and live the rest of your life. No, 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 God's plan is to sovereignly save you, and then he has a plan for being present with you throughout your life to the end for his glory. There's another way in which Paul uses the word call here, and it begins in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Only 
let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this is my rule in all the churches. Now, this is, here's truth number two. God is sovereign over our life assignment. Now, there's a deep well of theological richness in this. There's a deep mystery in this. But in this sentence, there is a glorious God that's assumed, isn't there? He is sovereign meaning he is capable of controlling and is controlling untold billions of details across the universe for his glory and for the good of his children. He's the only one in the cosmos with the authority and the power to determine everyone in this room's life assignment. While we're all floundering around trying to figure out our lives, God's the one who gave you life and placed you where you are. And there is perhaps, for many of us in the room, an uncomfortableness to the truth of this sentence. We love independence. We love it. We celebrate it with fireworks every year. Right? If you have a dog or kids trying to sleep, you know that, right? (laughs) We love the idea, the concept of total, unequivocal freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want it. In fact, many of us unintentionally were parented to, to love this fact. Many of us were told consistently that we could be or do whatever we wanted to be or do in this life as long as we put our minds to it. Not only were we told this, but then for many of us, younger generation, were handed these little devices that we could put in our pockets, and these devices that almost all of us have now would give us the manufactured illusion of being limitless. They would give us the illusion of being able to transcend time and space. The illusion of being able to build any kind of life in any kind of place with any kind of person. We hold in our hands with these little phones in our pockets any possibility, any job, any location, any potential spouse. We can just, we just flip and swipe and, and as we mindlessly scroll, we train our minds to endlessly covet greener grass in some other place that's different than where we presently inhabit. A place where God maybe has more joy for us. The illusion of limitlessness, though, everyone in the room, newsflash, it's not true. Right now, you're here, and you're nowhere else, (laughs) and you can't be anywhere else. There is one limitless being in the universe, and it's not us. And I want you to consider for a moment all the things that you did not choose about your life. Let's just, let's just, let's, let's all eat some humble pie for about three minutes, right? You did not choose where you were born. Your life, in fact, the sentence, you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you put your mind to it. You know where that sentence doesn't make sense? North Korea, Somalia, Ukraine over the last three years. 
You were born not in those places, though, not by your choice. Why weren't you born in Ukraine? Why haven't you undergone the suffering of those people for the last couple years? Not any choice of your own. You didn't put an order to God before your existence. No, you were totally subject to the will of a sovereign God and the location of your birth. The same goes for your parents you were born to. You did not choose them. You did not choose how you would be raised, what sufferings you would experience, what joys you might experience. You didn't choose, contrary to popular opinion, the gender you were born into. Your life, think about it, your life would look radically different had you been born a different gender than you presently are. You didn't choose to be born a man, to be born a woman. That was assigned to you without your input. Gosh darn it. Right? For the most part, you did not choose what you look like. You can will yourself all you want to play in the NBA, but if you're five foot tall with a six inch vertical, it ain't happening. (laughs) Right? You're limited in a way totally outside of your control. And furthermore, you didn't choose what you're gifted in. Some of you were born with the ability to sing. And you come up here and you do it on the stage. Some of you are not, and we're happy you do it down there. Right? Some of you were born with the ability to public speak. Some of you were not. You didn't choose any of that. But you find yourself with particular natural proclivities to certain tasks and not to others, and everyone is always subject to things that are outside their control. But when Christians put their faith in God, they now acknowledge a God who has total control and who is eternally committed to their good. Now, what does that mean for the Christian? It means we accept from the hand of God the things in our lives that are outside of our control because we trust the one who is in control of those things. It means we, as the text says in verse 17, we lead the life that God has assigned to us. It means we look for God in the life season, the stage, the situation we've been placed in. It means that changing our season or stage or situation does not consume our mind's attention all the time. We will not have more of God in a future kind of life than we have right now. All of God is available to you now. (laughs) There's not more of Him later at a different age, not more of you, more of Him later in a different stage of life. He's He's God. He's limitless. And he has assigned to us this moment, and he has not, in fact, promised us another moment. In the context of 1 Corinthians 7, the passage we saw last week and why Paul is now sweeping in with these types of words is that there's some in Corinth that are hoping that if they could just get out of this difficult marriage with their unbelieving spouse, then happiness awaits them on the other side. And this sentence says, no, do not consume yourself with how you can escape your circumstances, rather consume yourself with how you can meet with God in these circumstances, be used by God in these circumstances circumstances. Truth number two, God is sovereign over our life assignment. Now, having laid down that principle, basically what Paul does is he just gives two illustrations um, that sort of illustrate that principle and, and what our priority should be in when we find ourselves in a particular 
situation that we cannot change. So look at verse 18 with me. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And there's the phrase that gets repeated three times throughout this text. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, I would venture to expect that there's not too many people in here really worried about changing their circumcision status, right? That's not the concern of our lives. Like, what in the world is this about? Now, it's when we have to read the Bible on the Bible's own terms and understand what's in the minds of the people. And so this is a minor little commercial here on what in the world's happening. Uh, Before Christ's fulfillment of the Old Covenant, Israelite people were commanded to circumcise their sons as the sign and symbol. You're one of God's people. It's a physical act Every male Israelite would have been different than every male of the pagan nations around them. They were not to intermarry with Gentiles who did not worship the one true God. That would have been a particular characteristic that would have been noticed if they did intermarry with a Gentile woman. They were not to share table fellowship with the Gentiles. They were not to worship the other gods of the Gentiles. This physical mark set them apart as the people of God. Now, now, there was a promise to the people of God that salvation would come through the seed of Abraham. That is the child that would come from the Israelite people that would pass through, without getting graphic, that particular part that has the mark of circumcision. (laughs) Christ would, would come, right, through the line of David, line of Abraham. But when Christ came, he fulfilled this promise, right? God is the, uh, Jesus was the seed of the offspring of Eve, of son of Abraham, son of David. He came to fulfill all the Old Testament promises, and he came to offer salvation to everybody, Jew and Gentile. So circumcision no longer was the physical symbol of being one of God's people. Being Jewish no longer meant being one of God's people. Now, Why does this matter for the Corinthians? Well, circumcision still had some social ramifications. And so some people were Jew when they got saved, when they were called. Some people were Gentile when they were called. And there's a question going around. It's like, well, what do we do about this? How do we become more holy? How do we change our situation so that we're benefited spiritually and socially, right? So some Jews falsely taught grown Gentile men, you got to get circumcised or you're not in the real will of God. You need a change of your circumstance. On a theological level, they said it was necessary. On a practical level, um, being uncircumcised made it harder to minister to Jews because the Jews who didn't believe in Christ said, I don't want to hear anything you have to say. On the other side of the equation, Gentiles in Corinth and and, uh, 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 And Greek elites, they would have looked down on Jewish people. I'd never knew this before, but apparently there was some kind of procedure that could undo circumcision or make it look like you could undo circumcision. And some Jews wanted to fit in at the Greek gymnasiums, and uh, they wanted to fit in at the public bathhouses where such things would be noticed, and they wanted to hide their distinction so they could fit in with the elites. The physical mark had social ramifications, and they believed, maybe if I can make a change, I can get to a better kind of life. Now, do you see why he's using such a thing as an analogy? He's using something as unchangeable as your physical body. He's saying, if you were called by God, saved in this, don't seek to change this, right, to try to serve God in a better way. If you were circumcised, 
Praise God, minister to people who will let you minister to them. If you're uncircumcised, praise God, minister to people who will let you minister to them. Don't try to change that. Rather, trust that this is part of God's assignment to you and your particular kind of ministry. Look at the text again, because here's the real important crux of it, right? If you got lost in all of that, because I talked fast, uh, jump back on the train right now. Here's a good point to jump back on. Verse 19, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor circumcision. It it, it doesn't count for anything, comma, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And here's the truth, truth number three. God calls us to obedience within our life assignment. There's a proclivity within us to focus on what God has not told us to focus on. To make primary what God has not told us is primary. We're always seeking to make the big change that will make some kind of difference in our lives, while simultaneously missing the thousands of smaller but clearer things God has told us to do. Paul says, do not prioritize what in God's eyes is of no consequence while clearly ignoring other things that is of major consequence. There's apparently, now now, 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 let's think about how silly this is, okay? Now let's backtrack on the whole story of 1 Corinthians. There's apparently some within the Corinthian church making arguments over what's more spiritually advantageous, circumcision or uncircumcision. Meanwhile, according to chapters 1 through 6, there are members in the Corinthian church sleeping with prostitutes, suing one another, and entertaining ongoing incestuous relationships. And they're arguing over whether it's better to be circumcised or not. Well, let's talk about some other things first, right? How silly is this, but how familiar is it? How often do we seek to change our circumstance more than we seek to change our hearts? To change something that we believe will be advantageous to us, meanwhile, we'll protect this sin from anyone touching it. Don't assume that change of circumstance is the answer if you are incapable of obedience in your present life assignment. (laughs) So Paul uses this, this physical example, and then he transitions to use a more directly social example in verses 21 through 24 we've already kind of talked about. So uh, look at 21 through 24 with me. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called on the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who's free when it's called, he's a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was caused, there let him remain with God. Now I want you to note that Paul's not totally against any type of life change. We have freedom to move or change jobs or change relationship status. And, and for those who are bond servants, he basically says, hey, if you've got the opportunity, become free. That's fine. He's more concerned with what your priorities are. Were you a bond servant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. Why? Because Jesus has changed your primary priorities. Servanthood might be the space which you best glorify God by making disciples. Check to make sure that's the case before you try to escape that, 
right? And assume that being richer and being a master and being all these things is somehow better for the kingdom of God. He might need a bondservant in this person's house for the glory of God. And again, Paul, Paul repeats the principle, verse 24, and here's the real key. There, let him remain with God. Now, that's the real key, and that's truth number four. God calls us to contentment with God in our life assignment. The goal of life is not social status. The goal of life is not something that the world can offer. There is a glorious constant, a source of life, a God who is not only sovereign over our life assignment, but who is very much present in our life assignments. The Corinthians were convinced there's some higher spirituality somewhere out there. And God's saying, or or Paul's saying, no, God's right here in your imprisonment, in your freedom, in your Jewishness, in your Gentileness. Paul says God is with you right now. Your aim is not to change from Jew to Gentile or change from Gentile to Jew. Your aim is not to change from slave to free or free to slave. Your aim is to be with God. Where you are, come what may, change or not, forevermore as a slave, forevermore as a free, I'm remaining with my God. And Paul argues this from personal experience, and he writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? That passage is not about kicking the field goal by the strength of Christ in you. That passage is about if I miss the field goal, I'm berated by my teammates, lose all my friends, lose my job, broke as a joke, homeless on the street, no longer in the NFL. I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) I can exist in that. I can find joy in that. That's what that verse is about. It's about miracle contentment God does in you And in such a way that you learn it when things don't go the way you want them to go. One of the most striking things over the last several months, I've been reading the rare jewel of Christian contentment, one of the first points that he makes is that contentment is learned. And it's learned through a process of life God escorts you through. He walks you through things you wish were not happening and teaches you that God is the most important thing happening in your life. Contentment in the Lord is simply the outworking of deep faith. Faith that God is the source of all of our joy. Faith that all of God's promises will come true. Faith that none of my lustful idolatries or cravings will fix all the problems that I have. They will make them worse. Faith that every good and perfect gift God has ever given me is just that. It's a gift of grace, and I'm thankful for it. Even if I never uh, receive another earthly want in this earthly life, God has been eternally gracious to me through Jesus. Prioritize contentment with God before you prioritize some kind of new life for God. So here's, here's the truth, and I think the main crux of what Paul's trying to get at here 
Our most important calling is God's call to eternal life, number one. Number two, God's sovereign over our life assignment. Number three, God calls us to obedience in our life assignment. And number four, God calls us to contentment with God in our life assignment. Now, let me conclude with some practical takeaways, because contentment is something learned. It's something fought for. It's something we wrestle with. You don't just get it when you're a Christian. No, God, God escorts you through it so that you wake up one day and you're a little more content than you were the, the day before. And so what's the process look like? Here's some stuff. Takeaways. Number one, confess your limitations and your struggles to God. Everything in your sinful soul wants to be God. <laughs> Combat that by confessing to God the ways that you're not God. <laughs> saying, Lord, I can't control this. I can't change this. And God, I want it to change, but I have no power in me to change it. Confess your humanity to God. It won't surprise him. <laughs> he, he knows who you are and what you are and what you're capable of. Confess it to him. Number two, exalt the character of God. The, the pathway to Christian contentment is a higher view of God, not a lower one. You must, you must see him as more sovereign than you saw him the day before, more good than you saw him the day before, more eternal than you recognize. A higher view of God will lead you to accept from his hand whatever his will may be for your short life. Number three, pray daily for contentment and joy with God. This is, this is one of those things, Christian. There are certain things that are physical acts that you know to do or not do, right? Like, don't have sex outside of marriage. It's a, just don't do it. You can control yourself not to do it. But, but commands in Scripture over and over and over again tell you, rejoice. Now, how do you obey that command when nothing in you feels joyful? What you're faced with is a command from God that you're actually incapable of obeying. <laughs> Rejoice. It's like, ah, does that mean smile? <laughs> no. So what do you do in that moment? You look back at the God who commanded you that, and you say, God, you have to provide that. <laughs> like, put in me what I don't have in myself. Like, make me joyful. Give me a glad heart. Give me contentment. And you plead with it, like the pestering widow saying, God, give it to me. Please, God, give it to me. I need it. And in your prayer, you're declaring what's true in all of the universe. You are God, and I am not. <laughs> you're all full of joy, and I am not. Give me what you have and what I need. And God's glorified through your dependence on him in that way. Pray for daily contentment and joy with God. Number four, express gratitude for God's most important calling on your life. There are studies released now that say that when a person expresses gratitude, it's working the part in their brain that normally plunges them into anxiety and depression. Now, there's a physiological thing that happens when you express gratitude. What does the Bible tell us to do with pray without ceasing and to give thanks to the Lord? When you start getting down about the way your life is, think about what you truly deserve, what you don't deserve, and sit down and write down every good and perfect gift God has given you that you didn't ask for and you didn't earn. 
and God will do something in you. He'll stir a contentment and a joy you did not have. Number five, there's six, by the way. Five, pursue obedience to God's clearly revealed word. Do not focus on the stuff that's unclear while ignoring the things that are super clear, right? Worrying about what job you should work or who who you should marry or uh, uh, how you should handle this particular situation. Meanwhile, you've not meditated on God's law day and night, but maybe once or twice in the last week, (laughs) You're like, that's a verse. You know you're supposed to do that. <laughs> like that, that said, Blessed is the man who does that. And you're consumed with anxiety trying to figure out what the way of blessing is. Stop trying to figure out the unclear thing. He said, blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Do that. And trust God with the things that you don't know about, right? And lastly, number six, um, takeaway number six, seek wise counsel and wide open doors to help discern God's will in less clear situation. I'm trying to pray about what God's doing in my life, and it's something that's unclear. I seek wise counsel and wide open doors. God, is this something you've put before me? And are the wise people in my life saying that I should walk through that door? Because I cannot trust myself, but I'll, collect, I'll, I'll trust the collective wisdom of the Spirit-filled people God has assigned to me. Right? So six takeaways, four truths, Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for this obscure uh, text in Scripture, but for the truth within. God, we pray that you would help us to respond in worship now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.